0: everyone welcome back to a 2023 wrapped episode of practically intelligent in today's episode sanan and i are going to share our 2024 vision board for ai we're going to go through 2023 trends we found interesting some light predictions for the future topics in the discourse that we think will become more prominent and maybe even some things we disagree with there's uh, an interesting report that Sanan and I uh, were pouring through that came out uh, released by a venture capital firm named Co Two, it's a hundred plus pages of charts, insights about the current state of AI that is actually quite quite helpful. And so Sanan and I thought a way to ground our discussion versus just riffing would be to actually pull up which charts sort of caught our attention, and that we're thinking a lot about uh, going into uh, 2024. There's. Um, as everyone knows, uh, this is uh, Sinan's favorite activity: is is creating uh, vision boards. He's an active Pinterest power user, so he was really excited for this. I'm pumped as well. Uh, let's let's dive in. Let's do it. So uh, the first chart. We'll start off on a positive note: is that uh, despite intense demand, AI compute costs have decreased. It's a similar uh, tale in a lot of uh, different technology life cycles, but if you just look at the cost of using a gpt3 from january this year to even the middle of this year the cost of a thousand tokens fell from two cents ninety percent to actually this is this is gpt turbo so the cost between uh, actually just using standard gpt was probably even uh you know further reduced so we're just seeing costs continuing to fall uh this despite gpu scarcity um, despite some of the issues in supply chains we're facing in semis, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper to uh, run these AI models. I think that that's incredibly positive news and on for the ecosystem, et cetera. Everyone um, sort of talks about there's the state of these GPT, GPT pores, um, where it's incredibly difficult uh, for folks to get access to the models. But largely, there's been uh, continuing falling costs for models uh, that were released. I mean, as early as this year, are becoming more and more economical to run. I think another thing that i wanted to point out uh, this was the next chart in the report but it's just interesting when we look at uh, where a lot of the innovation is headed this is sound obvious but you pay one time for training you pay continuously for inference and actually a lot of the innovation that we're seeing is smaller models a great example of this recently is microsoft released phi2 that was traced on a uh, 2.7 billion parameter model trained on textbook data That showed uh, abilities to uh, potentially mathematically reason and could potentially be helpful for a host of enterprise uh, tasks uh, and is uh, showed outperformance relative to to GPT 3.5 on certain mathematical benchmarks is a great example of there's a lot of innovation and and more uh, economies of uh, excuse me. There's a lot, the cost of training is falling much, much more faster and cost of fine-tuning, and the performance you're getting from that is a one-time fixed cost you pay. And we're seeing more and more smaller fine-tuned models on specific data that are highly performant. And I think as, you know, potentially inference is going to continue to be expensive, even though those costs are dropping, I think we're going to see a lot more localized models, Sinan, where people are, it's not depending on an external third party, people are going to figure out that certain models available uh, are available for certain tasks, they're well suited towards it, and we don't need to even run the inference costs necessarily. So I think we're going to see more examples of uh, local models and these sort of architectures where uh, you may have some bigger model or you have, it frankly, just a series of smaller models that work really, really well to, for your specific tasks. And so those economies of uh, rapidly falling trading costs, explosion of fine-tuned models or smaller parameter models that are well-suited, but higher costs of inference, I think are gonna create some interesting architectures that emerge. We're gonna hear a lot more about uh, localized uh, AI architectures in 2024. Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, a lot to respond to there. Um, as far as the original graph, the, the, the one where you know compute costs are decreasing, which is true, they are decreasing. Um, this is gonna be like my first of the many. Yeah, but isn't this also true um, of, 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 our, of our graphs here? So for the graph here, on the right-hand side at least, cost of running GPT-3 and 3.5 is down 90% in five months. That's the cost of using ChatGPT. Like, that's the cost that developers pay when they use ChatGPT that's to to my understanding right that's not the cost that open ai has is like incurring per 1000 tokens right yeah so uh, again coming back to the fact that um, yes compute costs are coming down they're still extremely high but open ai reducing their price by 90% may not be as indicative that compute costs are 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 decreasing at that rate as well right You have to, you have to put yourself in the shoes of open AI. They obviously came out swinging, but Mm -hmm. didn't take long for other companies to catch up, not in market size, but at least in performance. So when you're open AI, you have to think about that. Like, well, they're going to say, well, we got to keep lowering our costs in order to kind of keep getting new people on the platform. So I wonder, I guess how much of that 90% drop is because compute has gotten better. And how much of that is marketing, like we need more users, therefore we're going to decrease the cost I, I just I'm curious what that split
0: is oh it's a, it's a great point. I think hundred percent right The strategy for open AI is we have unlimited and are able to raise unlimited venture money. How do we lock people into our ecosystem, and you're right. you're seeing that right? So if you are trying to capture more share, you will undercut your prices, et cetera that's kind of. 101. So it's interesting, I did look for other measurements in these charts of, you know, estimated cost of inference, etc, there's actually very few good, mm-hmm. you know, sort of data on how the cost, for example, I was looking for like, I was hoping for an ideal chart of what's the cost of, you know, uh, you know, some sort of uh, standard measurement of training, uh, and fine tuning a model versus uh, the cost of inference, and obviously, it's really hard to compare apples to apples. So, It's interesting. I think that there is just this broader, it's just a broader point of, which is obvious to to folks, you pay for inference on an ongoing basis, but there's something interesting where, well, these models are getting so good for specialized tasks in a lot of cases. And so, um, and you're only paying one time for that training uh, use. So there's a bunch of interesting things, I think, that'll emerge where uh, folks that are still sort of constrained by uh, cost compute, and this is a lot of people, right? Even if, you know, inference costs have dropped markedly. It's still really, really expensive. We're still in a sort of GPU uh, poor paradigm. I think it's really interesting to see what people will do with a lot of these smaller models that they can discover, um, quickly host, put together, and, and may not need to, to, to pay for ongoing inference. And so I we'll think we'll see different architectures and sort of um, sets of infrastructure uh, emerge to support those use cases. Um, but what about you, Sinan? What was one of your, your first takeaways from the report and interesting charts?
1: Yes, I will drop my first graph in our Slack channel for us, but you're obviously going to see it on our, on our YouTube video here. All right. So the, this graph is, the title is Model Evaluation is Broken Today. Um, big claim. And if you listen to our episode with Praveen, you kind of already have a sense for where uh, we're gonna go with this. But the graph has two sides. On the left, it shows the human preference between Cloud1 and Cloud2, 2, two generations of models from the same company, Anthropic, a competitor to OpenAI. Um, and the chart shows that Cloud1, the first one is seventy percent, 77% overall win rate, In 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 the competition, versus seventy-two percent for Claude two, so humans tend to prefer Claude one over Claude two, not by much, but they do tend to prefer Claude one. The graph on the right is showing Claude two versus Claude one as Anthropic, the company who created it, measures it on benchmarks, and these are very kind of quote-unquote common benchmarks like grade school math, the GSM database, Uh, the bar exam, which only is now popular. Of of the few things I don't like about OpenAI, I hate that they popularized using the bar exam as a benchmark because uh, (laughs) I can't pass the bar exam, but would you trust me to do something? Probably. So I I, I hate that, but that is one of the benchmarks that Anthropic is saying Claude 2 is better. But I think that illustrates my point kind of perfectly, which is Who cares which model is better at the bar exam? That's not what humans are asking for help with day to day. So there's the point that they're trying to make, um, that Code2 is trying to make, I assume, is that there's a mismatch between how developers and companies say how well their model is doing and how well we humans, users, think the model is doing. And that mismatch if not fixed pretty quickly is going to lead to, most likely is gonna to lead to this kind of gap between, you know, research companies saying, look how good we can get these benchmarks. And then companies being like, yeah, but our users like this other model better. And so who cares what you're doing? And you're gonna get this kind of dichotomy um, between benchmarks and actual user feedback. You know, those two things aren't conjoined in some way, you kind of lose this community between the two, which is kind of like the, it's not even the worst case scenario. But, um, so that mismatch for me is quite stark. And I think it's its really annoying,
0: <laughs> frankly. What do you think? You know, it's funny. I was just texting in our kind of work group chat. My favorite new AI meme is uh, this, it's the IQ score meme uh, with the distribution. And in the middle is, you know, the guy crying, which is, I'm just going to use a comprehensive set of hundreds of benchmarks to figure out. And then everyone else is just, the both sides are just, I'll just play with the model for 15 minutes. And so it illustrates kind of a common point, Sanan, that where frustrations with uh, benchmarks, et cetera, is, uh, it, it is annoying, right? Like, how did we decide that the bar exam was, it's a great point, like, that was something to, uh actually aspire to it feels like it was arbitrarily suited and so it folks that have listened to the episode with Praveen was he's calling for more modular benchmarks that that actually make sense versus these headline numbers um so this makes a ton of sense the one thing I inter- didn't make sense for the chart is there's a huge performance and harmlessness what is that what does that even mean like how do you measure that do you notice on the right hand side of the chart
1: Sanan? um yeah.
0: between cla- how what is what does that even mean um you know i'd have to actually look into exactly what they
1: were doing um for that but there are there are data sets that are um specifically around measuring harmlessness um i'm actually like while we're doing this i'm 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 curious now which one that they're referencing
0: uh let's see i'm almost curious Uh, what yeah what is a data set investing like involving harmlessness is it just pictures and descriptions of flowers uh, that's uh the...
1: yeah um i mean i'll have to look into it on my own because i'm not exactly sure but like so that's that's another good point is for a lot of these benchmarks you know you you, you you'll usually say like mmlu or hello Swag, which are like direct references to a specific data set but when you just say bar exam it's like what do you mean by that and same same like what do you mean by harmlessness what do you mean by that like i can you tell us? And that's actually going to lead us into some other discussions a little bit later on. But it, it's pretty arbitrary when a company says we're 2x better in this category. And it's like, oh, well, I don't know what that means.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Frequent listeners of the pod will know uh, our, our frustration with uh, with data benchmarks and how confusing this stuff is. Um, it is a uh, good transition on to a topic that I think we're hearing a lot more about, which is, um, which is, uh, synthetic data. Um, and so one chart that was pretty interesting in this was, um, and we'll, we'll touch on sort of, uh, data scarcity as well soon, which is, um, we already talked about the power of fine tuning, fine tuning and, and domain specific data on, on performance. And so this chart sort of suggests that, uh, synthetic data can create um, and and augment uh, an ad performance on top of uh, of fine tuning. So it's interesting because if you actually look at it, it's comparing zero shot GPT versus BERT, which is an, again an apples to apples comparison. Um, but we've largely starting to hear this, right? If you if you looked at predictions from Hugging Face's co founders on their 2024 predictions, one of their first ones is that we're going to hear a lot and a lot more about synthetic data. And I it's <laughs> right before we were recording, we noticed something interesting, which is. In, I can explain synthetic data in a vision and a tabular context, right? So in a vision context, I can say you're training, you're building an autonomous car and you don't have any images or data labels for a your car driving through snow. So you might synthetically generate assets. If you have a tabular data set with a undercover demographic, you can potentially generate sample data sets that have similar characteristics to your undersampled population. And the language sent, I actually don't know. We're going back to this practical impetus for the podcast. So not, I actually have no, if I'm a, a, a PM and tasked with saying, someone says, hey, look into synthetic data for this. Uh-huh. I actually have realized I have actually a very little clue what my actionable next steps are. So this was this chart was interesting because it showed me how little I actually understood about synthetic data in the context of language models. So, and this isn't a great chart. It was more just a broader point. I realized that as a huge gap in my understanding um, and so I'm kind of curious yeah, to know, I
1: mean, it's totally common because it, it, it's one of those things where when someone says, look into synthetic data, or let's see if we can't use some synthetic data, your, your natural follow-up question should be, well, what kind of synthetic data, synthetic labels, synthetic prompt response pairs, synthetic evaluation, like judging, like what, what do you mean by synthetic data? What most people mean when they just say, synthetic data as it pertains to LLMs is having another LLM effectively write a preferred response or at the very least judge a preferred versus a non-preferred response to a second AI's prompt. So like a human will usually write a prompt. Like um, I'll take an example from Anthropic from their original um, constitutional AI paper. So part of what they do with synthetic data Is what they call red teaming, well, what is called red teaming, where a human will write a malicious prompt like how do you make an explosive out of kitchen materials? Something like that. The example in their paper was how do you hack into your neighbor's Wi-Fi? But I'll 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 one-up them. How do you make an explosive from kitchen materials? And then you would ask the model, and then the model, which has been trained to be helpful, will answer the question incorrectly or correctly, regardless. And then the constitutional part kind of kicks in where you then follow up as a chain prompt. Uh, okay, so given that this constitution exists, we are hard, we, don't, we don't like illegal things, we don't like unethical things, we don't like harmful things, what mm. critique would you give to that response? And then hopefully the AI will say something like, well, it's illegal to make a or I I don't know, whatever, it's harmful to make a bomb, and to put it mildly. And then the second part would be, okay, now revise it now write a better response given that critique. And the AI will say, I would say something like, I can't answer that for you. And then the human will then take the human written prompt and the now synthetically generated guardrail and then use that prompt response pair to further fine tune said model. So that is an Mm -hmm. example of synthetic data. But at the end of the day, synthetic data is just any kind of non-naturally occurring Data naturally occurring is doing a lot of work there, but some data that has been, that has been created uh, artificially for the purpose of augmenting a training set. You didn't find it, you made it. Um, and again, that definition is not enough, but that's like the, the, the easiest definition to think about is, is this a naturally occurring piece of text or was this text generated
0: by something else? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, but, right? I think I I wonder it, it you meant this point also when we were talking about it, is when people say alignment, it's very tough to parse what they mean. Synthetic data, exactly what you're saying, which is that uh yeah. I there's actually I don't even know if there's there's not great it's it's essentially self-instruction. Um and I'm not sure exactly how people um, one friend of the pod wrote a, a more academic post on synthetic data, but they're not actually great practical guides on how to use this to actually augment your model one. So it'd be, it's an interesting potentially explore for 2024. The uh, other thing that's interesting is that um, what I've seen, and we have a you know CTO in our portfolio doing this, which is, um, and, I, and I don't know how, which goes to the point we, we, should, we should delve into it more uh, down the line is that uh, they're using state-of-the-art models for uh, synthetic data and actually only using smaller localized models uh, for actually running their model in production, so they—that actually is a trend. When we go back to that localized sort of model versus, you know, a bigger model, um, I could see that's something that's uh, that's emerging. As you might use these synthetic data, uh, these state-of-the-art GPT-4, et cetera, to generate synthetic sort of instruction or preference sets, but then you're using some of these smaller models that can be fine-tuned. So um, that's definitely a, a, a you know theme or trend I could I could see uh emerging yeah
1: we've been talking about synthetic data but the, the thing about this graph and by the way if you can't see it for whatever reason you, the ba- the basic gist of the graph is it's showing the difference between in different tasks like named entity recognition or relation extraction blah 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 for different tasks it shows three bars one and they're all quality bars so higher is better the numbers don't matter for now for three bars, the one of them is zero-shot chat GPT, i.e., just asking chat GPT and seeing what it does. The second bar is fine-tuning a BERT model on synthetic data, data that has been non-naturally occurring but it was written by another AI, most likely. And then the third graph. Is fine-tuned on real data, i.e., naturally occurring data of that task nature, and they, it goes for pretty much for all of them. Rather, it goes up. Zero-shot GPT did the worst. BERT trained on synthetic data is in the middle. BERT trained on real data is at the end. And I think the point they're trying to make in the name of the graph is that synthetic data can augment fine-tuning. But sorry, Kotu, this doesn't make any sense to me because one of your bars is not even about fine tuning a model, it's just asking ChatGPT. So the, the first two bars don't really have any relation to me. What I read from that graph is fine tuning models like BERT can be better than just asking ChatGPT. You can listen to any of my rambles on my newsletter or this show to, to hear that opinion over and over again. Fine tuning a local model can be a lot better than just relying on chat GPT. And then synthetic data is worse than real data because in every yep. case, the real data BERT was better than the synthetic data BERT. So this is one of the one of the few graphs where I just looked at it and be like, this isn't correct at all. Like this is the incorrect thing to walk away with. Synthetic data does not augment, or rather it can augment fine tuning, but this graph does nothing to show me that. If anything, this graph shows me synthetic data is worse than real data, but fine tuning is better than using a foundation model. That's all this graph's telling me.
0: I think it's a great observation, right? Because when I brought up this chart, I was like really excited about synthetic data beta stuff I was reading, and you had pointed this out to me. And so I think it's a great example of, again, going back to practicality, uh, Sinan, of there could be stuff that people talk a lot about, but you squint in a little bit further um, and they may not actually being used. Uh, there's not a clear next step for a lot of folks. So this is another one where I'm really glad you kind of pointed out um, some of the description in the chart. And uh, yeah, I'd be really curious to kind of see if there are, um, and, I, and I looked, I wasn't able to find of you know standardized benchmarks for uh, what synthetic data can do um, and how well it can augment your data set. So, But I think we're going to see more and more um, interest in synthetic data for sure in 2024 and uh, more yeah. interest in, and in how be. to implement that. Yeah.
1: And there should be. Again, it can help a lot. But in my, even in my own recent newsletter post, I, I show like there are still biases when you try to synthetically label data. And, and not biases yep. like stereotypes, those exist. But biases like if you kind of randomly give it answers to pick from, it will almost always prefer the first one over the second one just out of randomness. Not actually figuring out what it wants to do with it. So anyways, that aside. This actually leads into my next chart pretty well, Mm -hmm. um, which is about data quality. Uh, And then the title of the chart is data quality is just as important as data quantity. Um, I would actually go further and say data quality is more important than data quantity. That's not what they're saying, that's what I'm saying. And the chart basically goes through for four different tasks, sentiment analysis, similarity, text classification, and NLI, natural language inference. um, And for a standard model, this is actually data from Cohere, another competitor to OpenAI, um, who I'm a big fan of for what it's worth. And the, the chart is showing for each task two bars, one using a, f- quote, full data set, and then using another, the other bar is for a pruned data set, which is always 30%, the 30% best quality of the full data set. So the pruned data set is always... More than is always 70% smaller, so a lot smaller. And as you can probably guess where this is going, every single time the model actually performs better, not even the same, better, sometimes slightly, but always better on the pruned data set than it did on the full data set. And again, I've written two books on feature engineering, like literally for this purpose of like, yes, quality will always trump quantity. More data is almost. Is all, at this point, is almost always the wrong answer is we need more data, is we need more representative data, we need more quality data, but the first thing you should be doing is rooting out the non-quality data. And that might be synthetic or real. I think that's the thing, right? Yeah. You can put synthetic and real data together, but some of the real data will not be quality, some of the synthetic data will not be quality, it's more likely the synthetic data is less quality, but there's going to be a lot of bad quality data in the real data space. You can't just assume all real data is quality data. So that's uh, that's I hope people kind of latch onto that is you want to make because here's the other thing: it's going to make your training faster. You're you're using thirty percent of the data. It's like a it's like a no brainer to me. Your training is faster. You're therefore cheaper. Um, you're probably gonna be removing a lot of outliers as well. Outliers tend to be <clears> of <throat> worse quality. And so everything gets better all around, your performance gets better, you're using less data. It just, you know the problem is? It takes time. It takes yeah. mostly human time to actually think
0: about this. They're related to data quality. One chart that uh, I've found really interesting that I've been thinking a lot about is the scarcity of publicly available uh, good quality data. So this chart that I'm pulling up, um, Data Scarcity as a Potential Wall to Scaling Models, talks about, it's largely conceptual, but I think it's an interesting point, which is we are, these models are incredibly data hungry, and we may be running out of available data to for these models to publicly train. You've seen uh, GPT for, uh, excuse me, OpenAI start to hire specialized teams of data labelers to pay PhDs for specialized models and biology, talked about past the bar exam, they, they're paying, uh, you know, lawyers to actually label their data. They have these programs now where they're actually, uh, you know, directly paying people for data acquisition. And so I think this chart is interesting because it ties a meta point that I think we're seeing, which is we are... GPT five is rumored to kind of be trained on you know image and video, and so we're largely going to see uh, you know a step up improvement of um, some of these multimodal models. But largely, we're going to be kind of data constrained um, in the near future, which will affect a lot of people's ability to find uh, new uh, new data. I think the interesting in this chart is that it sort of the timeline is a very interesting, right? If you look at it as well we sort of peak around 2038 when i brought up an interesting point Sal, which i'll discuss is that i actually think we're going to hit data limits a lot sooner because of the legal regime and ai that people aren't paying enough attention to so one thing that was undercovered in jeep you know sam altman's announced latest announcements uh and in, in, uh, developer day uh when they announced Uh, GPT-3 was this idea of a copyright shield, right? Which was that OpenAI and other model providers like Stability will basically indemnify downstream usage of the model. And when I looked into litigation around this, which is, you know, intellectual property, uh, it's actually, there was a a few interesting case laws. There's one federal court uh, in California, um, you know, is Anderson versus Stability. And what, if you actually read the ruling, it wasn't that uh, you could just use these models. It was that, all of the original content creators basically didn't file their appropriate copyright claims to allow them to defend it if they had they could have probably uh you know constrained usage of of, of their your your data for training and so it's interesting to me which is i think people think we're in this big open regime for we had this open internet um you know common crawl and we'll have uh, the ceo of common crawl come on the pod but we're Entering a different era of and data quality is really the differentiator for your business model for your moat. People are going to find ways to restrict it. Um, content plotters use, use generated content uh, providers. Um, DeviantArt was one of the um, uh, plaintiffs in this case. So it's going to be interesting to see, see um, when we start to hit limits of data scarcity. Um, what that means for the sort of legal regime surrounding AI, and um, I'll, I'll pause there because that was a lot. But that chart just made me think of: is really twenty thirty eight? Is it really just we're going to run out of data, or is that this sort of um, fragmentation and um, the the legal environment surrounding IP going to bring that uh, to pass even sooner, potentially in the next two to three years? But that was something I've been I've been thinking about.
1: Yeah, the the idea of data constraint. Yeah, like, first of all, this this graph, um, it's kind of hard to read because, first of all, there's nothing, if you're not looking at it, you're not missing a lot because the labels are not, um, la- the actually not labeled at all. I have no idea what the y-axis is, you know what I mean? Um, like, what is this line? What is the line? Like, is this use, of, like, is this availability of quality to- like what is I, I, I cannot understand like what this graph is trying to tell me. Is it that we are not making as much text data as we used to? Because I can show you many other graphs where we are generating text data faster than ever. So the limit of text is also increasing. So when I look at yep. graphs like this, like it is really hard for me to put my head around like, well, what do you mean by we're running out of high-quality text data? Just because OpenAI used it for GPT-4 doesn't mean it's now an exhausted resource. Other people can use data from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago as well. And we're just making more data by the minute, right? So when when someone comes to me and says, we're running out of high-quality text data, and I go, no, you're running out of high-quality text data. And if you're not able to make the most of it, that's that's not a data problem. That's a you problem. If the data that we have today is not enough to model the task that you're trying to solve, that can't be true, in my in my humble opinion. And I frankly I have no stats to back that up. The amount of data that we have generated as as humanity is staggering. If that's not enough data to solve grade school math in an AI, that's not the data's fault. <laughs> We've been able to solve grade school math as a society for a long time, and there's data all
0: about it. Hundred percent. So it this goes back to like broader debates in AI, which is um, with the data available, right? Are we able to uh, Are we able to solve some of these trickier problems? I think that it's an interesting point, Son, because I, I would say I disagree a little because I think that in the future of legal regimes, basically, if people are allowed to retroactively change the copyright license on their training data and then sue mm-hmm. others for it, that's pretty interesting. So I won't. <laughs> uh, I mean, we literally had a call with someone that is very involved in this space where they are getting retroactively <laughs> sued for a model they published years ago. I talked to a head of ML at a Fortune mm-hmm. 50 company, which said part of the reason, and they they want to use this and put, you know, um, and this is in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, you need new um, AI sort of drug discovery solutions in place, so new specialized models to help folks understand um help researchers sift through information more quickly. And one of their biggest concern is that they're actually the feedback they're getting from legal is that if this copyright shield doesn't work, and you develop a drug off of it, and you pour hundreds of millions of dollars into an FDA process for approval, et cetera, research, and then someone can retroactively claim efforts to it, I think it's really interesting to think about, we may have enough data, right, the supply of data, But it made me think, actually, because the chart was it largely was talking about just the amount of data. It's not particularly well labeled, but we largely talk about this. of Well, we're running out of data. And actually, I think you're right. I think I agree with your premise, which is, well, there's a ton of data. The availability for the common developer, I think, is the unit that matters. And the reality is, I think I'm a little worried when I look at this um, and sort of see uh, how little this is discussed, which is that. It it is possible if in a new legal regime, this hasn't been settled at all, uh, for folks to basically retroactively uh, copyright their stuff, go after others for putting into their newer models. I think that's potentially dangerous. So I think we're gonna see more in litigation in 2024 between major model providers, potentially between Meta, OpenAI, et cetera. I mean, I don't even know people know this, but Sarah Silverman, sued Meta over Lama 2 for her books being no, used. I didn't know that. And the, before you know, so. It was crazy. So no one's really discussing this, but uh, it's interesting. When I talk to loosely, uh, you know, attorneys have no idea on this, but you look, like, I'm reading through the actual case material briefly, and it's never like, oh, you can't protect your IP because it's um, they're using your material in a wrong way. It's like, oh, you didn't go through the procedural steps to protect your IP, if that makes sense. And that's made me, when I look at that data scarcity, is what if that's actually sooner because of the legal regime? I don't know, so you're a content creator, you, you have books, I'm curious how you feel about, um, you know, your data potentially being yep, used, et cetera, I so. You.
1: I mean, first of all, I, I, I wanna say, I, I, more, I pretty much blanket support Sarah Silverman's premise. Because <laughs> as someone who has also written books, I do, because I'd be a hypocrite if I wasn't, frankly. Like, as someone who's also written books, if an AI is going to have access to my book, I'll use my book as an example, and which are mostly reference books on AI, then, well, the reason I write them is, you know, obviously for some royalties, but also because I want to disseminate the information in my style. I'm not saying anything that no human being has ever thought of before. That's that is ultra rare, it's theoretically impossible <laughs> for a human to say something that no other human has actually like had that thought before. But I'm saying it in my way, in my style, in a way that I think resonates with some mm-hmm. people. So it's not that my content is, is giving informative information to GPT-4 that it has never seen before. It knew everything that my book has already said, without a doubt. But the difference is, if you can say it in Sinan's style to the right person, you might be able to teach them better that's really the point of again coming back to my book that's the point of teaching in the first place so if anything it'd be really cool for me and this is a big ask and i again i i'm not actively i don't know how to do this the, the best way but if there's attestation for me is more important again personally yeah the ability for gpt to say by the way if you liked that presentation this style is coming from these sources, like these people write in a similar way about this topic. Like Sinan Osdamer. feel free to check out his book and for much more like just static knowledge about this topic. I would be over the moon if that could be done and done well. So I, I'm less in the camp of don't touch my book, it's my copyright. I'm more in the camp of I would I'd be happy to surrender, you know, the use of this book for this purpose, as long as there is some way back for users. You're not obfuscating, you're not hiding the fact that I made this content and that kind of idea of ownership. um, There's like really, like really um, hyper sense of ownership, I think is really just playing out a lot.
0: And again, I'm not going to comment on
1: a lot of that stuff, but it's, it's, that's how I feel at
0: least. (laughs) No, I think the central idea is this idea of attestation, right, and transparency, right? So even if, I think a lot of people would potentially, like like you, be fine with, um, you know, using it if, it, if the if you had consented to it. It's interesting, though, Sinan, because I think I had a conversation with, uh, you know, engineer we we both know, and we I was talking to him, and he said something really interesting, which is I was talking about, you know, these restrictions where people are changing robots.txt to basically restrict... Um, you know, training uh, of newer models. And he said something really interesting, which is, well, they'll get around that anyways, and someone will inevitably do it, train it and put it in a model. And then we'll just use that for training data. And it's already out there. So there's nothing we can do. And I argue that that is actually the wrong frame to use. use. So another analogy to explain this is with open source licensing. So when you get to a large enough company of a size and you're serving a bank or someone a healthcare organization putting software into productions, there are teams that will actually check and routinely go through, this is the boring aspect of, you know, there's huge departments for this that no one really realizes until you're in a larger company, you're actually under some sort of regulatory scrutiny, you have to do reporting, you're public, et cetera. But there's a lot of enterprise value, a lot of spend uh, in this segment of the market. There are people that will check your licenses for open source and make sure you're compliant. So you can't get sued and the underlying product you have is invalid when you're shipping the actual software. Similarly with AI, I think that it's sort of naive to say, well, it's out there, we can just use this training data. Because the reality is if you are the head of ML at one of these pharmaceutical companies, you actually care very much about the downstream implications of licensing and whether that fucks you over in the long run. So I think this idea of attestation and transparency is actually gonna be critical going forward because I think for people to be able to use open source, there needs to be more transparency. I actually think even you know the major model partners, hey, we'll just shield you via copyright claims that may not be enough. And so I think as sort of data gets more scarce, uh, where people are realizing, you know, we talked about synthetic data, we talked about data quality, where people realize it really is about you know, this underlying high quality data that you can find. And if someone else has it, and it's it's the difference between your product working and not, and they've restricted it, I think we're going to see more examples of, you know, people essentially Uh, realizing uh, some of the legal and compliance challenges to AI, which is that this IP licensing regime, maybe the answer is just everyone ignores it. And similar to music, innovation just completely outpaces it. One thing I think that's a little different is that I think the legal regime didn't, you know, it's not Napster where people don't really understand some fundamentals of this. I think people understand the stakes of uh, getting AI right. And there's a lot of deep pockets to sort of protect your different turf. So my prediction is this will get pretty, um, in, more interesting and maybe we'll have some, you know, I don't know if Sarah Silverman's A-list. More A-list celebrities potentially influencers suing uh, I would uh, consider her A-list. He, yeah, she's okay. So uh, she really even more she though. is. I feel like that's <laughs> yeah, more, what A-list means, A-list <laughs> means okay, I don't know, but fair. Um, to end us uh, on, on another, another note, Son, you had a, you had an interesting poll that yeah, I was gonna say up.
1: on on that note of how humans feel about AI, this one I oh my god, we can't We only have a couple minutes. I'm only going to give myself a couple minutes on this because this next graph,
0: what about
1: here it is, AI regulation may be more likely than most think. So presumably, this chart is about regulation, okay? Keep that in mind. There are four bars on this bar chart. Each one represents a percentage of, of respondents to a poll from the AI Policy Institute. Um, for what it's worth, I did, I did the most research into this poll, um, because the first bar on this poll is 83% of surveyed respondents believes AI could cause a catastrophic event. Okay. Oh no. 83% of survey respondents think AI could cause a catastrophic event. Okay. So when I first saw that number, my first thought was BS. That is not true. <laughs> like, I don't think that's actually true. That doesn't seem right at all to me. And then if you look into the actual numbers, which I did, in the actual poll itself is, that wasn't really the question. Or rather, the question was, how likely do you think is it that, N- that NAI could accidentally cause a catastrophic event? Uh, that's the actual question if you look at the, 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 the paper that the AI policy put out. So first of all, that bar in that bar chart is not even the right question. This is, it specifically says accidentally. And here are the options for that one question. The options are, so how likely do you think AI could accidentally cause a catastrophic event? Extremely likely, very likely, somewhat likely, not likely at all, and not sure. So of the five possible answers, two of which are, hell yeah, extremely likely and very likely are basically the same thing. The third one is still, yes, somewhat likely, like I believe so. Only one out of five of those answers is just flat out no. So there's no degrees of probably not, not very likely. And then one of them is just, I don't know, which is a good part you need the I don't know but three-fifths of the answers are yes and one of the answer is no so you get this I mean this is in any poll but like when you get polls like this and this eventually gets yeah like it's new, pretty egregious 85 percent of people think AI is catastrophic it's like no no <laughs> that's not what the poll says at all
0: it's no, this is this is a terrible survey methodology one. It's also interesting because uh we we're going to do an episode on AI information hygiene uh to, to start the year like mm-hmm. and, and information diet excuse me and, and what uh people could be doing to re- like this is this is pretty egregious terrible survey methodology. And also it it's something that really bothers me with the sort of ethical and responsible AI sort of space. There are, and we've had Giada on the podcast who uh, leads some of this for Hugging Face. There are really important ethical questions uh, of how AI's of and systems that are algorithmically govern our lives should be trained, should be governed, et cetera. Um, whether AI caught a catastrophic event and then asking people to describe it, this is more of the kind of doomerism that is just, I think it's a little Accidental. bit misleading. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's pretty insane. The, yeah it's like asking someone who doesn't know anything. You know, a lot of these people are just seeing what they have. They're just like what their P doom is. It makes no sense. People will not. I I, I bet you asked actually that 80% plus Sinan to describe their scenario for AI accidentally creating a catastrophic scenario. I, I bet the vast majority couldn't do it, but this is actually one of my biggest frustrations with the responsibly AI space is that. And so these whole existential debates is that we can't seem to, uh, sort of describe how this happens and, and get away from this sort of like existential debates of even sort of these catastrophic sort of failures um, they're not really well defined and uh, they're really really vague so um, I'm really yeah, glad you brought this up. What does catastrophic mean? What do
1: you mean by that? Like yeah like this is the this is the, I think the the number one chart the reason I wanted to bring it up was these are the numbers that make it to the news right? Yep. But it's not that hard And by the way, while we're on this topic, I did, I was looking up Anthropics harmlessness data set because one of the other bars on this bar chart is 18% trust AI tech executives to self-regulate AI. Okay. Um, And if you look at the actual, the question again, again, the answers are strongly agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, strongly disagree. So this is actually a better distribution. Um so most people agree that tech executives should not regulate themselves. If you read Anthropic's announcement about their harmlessness, I'm going to quote here from their from their site, from their website. <clears throat> we have an internal red teaming evaluation, that process I described earlier, that scores our models on a large representative set of harmful prompts using an automated test while we also regularly check the results manually. In this mm-hmm. evaluation, Claude 2 was 2x better at giving harmless response compared to Claude 1.3. That's the 2x that we saw. Period. That's it. They have an internal evaluation that scores models on a large set of prompts using automated tests.
0: 2x. But like, what yeah. It's you, also really, that's the I, only I, thing from the chart that's actually like a like a order of magnitude different. The rest is like you know, yeah. Claude two, Claude one, and then the left hand of the chart is like yeah. there is no difference if you actually and, use human preference in scoring. Yeah. So this and is did you pretty... write
1: this prompts? Did you write these prompts for Claude one? And then while you were developing Claude two, were you biased in having already written the prompts, knowing what you want your guardrails to be, so you made sure that Claude two was going to be better at them, or was this test set? Fully unseen by both Claude 1 and Claude 2. Like, there's so many more dimensions to this. this, That's the only number I do agree with on that bar chart, is that I believe that most people don't trust tech executives to self-regulate themselves. I sure as hell don't.
0: (laughs) Damn. The this this is pretty bad but yeah these are the numbers that get in the headlines so i'm glad we're we're calling it out Um, yeah that's
1: what's going to be in they're not who they're you think they care about the cost of compute uh of of training versus inference no no no. 85 percent of voters because that's the other thing about this poll by the way is it was specifically about voters like most of the questions are about presidential candidates and how favorably do you view google and palantir and then they talk about AI and I'm like, it's like, okay, so this isn't even a full survey about AI. You first ask them questions about their political standpoint and then talked about AI. Like you're kind of framing the question of AI as if it were political. So you find yeah. people to be more polarizing when you do that.
0: Yeah, it's Anyways. a bad sort of apology. <laughs> no, so uh, uh, this is the end of the Grind My Gears section of the Merry episode. Christmas,
1: everybody. <laughs> happy Monica and happy holidays. You, I hope you all have a great...
0: <laughs> Do you have any concrete predictions for 2024 that you want to list out, Um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or... And I can't wait for people to play this
1: back and tell me how wrong I was. Um, but I, I recently did my kind of wrap-up series for my Pearson audio uh, series mm-hmm. and I unveiled where they asked me very similar questions. And I literally talked about Sarah Silverman as well, <laughs> like a regulation <laughs> and how litigation is going to proceed um, because, uh, I, you know, I said this before, I'll say it again. AI has never been more accessible to the average person, which is A, amazing, and B, is starting conversations that have, at this until today, have really only been had by developers, tech executives, nonprofits, and the occasional lawsuits. And these questions have been not, these are not new questions, but they happen to be questions that we're only starting to debate now. So my prediction for 2024 is gonna be, uh, is more around the philosophical interactions between humans and computers are gonna trend more towards, and this is not the best, you know, the most positive prediction, but they're gonna trend more towards the way we think about politics. There is gonna be a lot of polarizing views a lot of good versus bad and nothing in between. And it's going to be up to, hopefully, a lot of smarter people than, no offense, you or I, but smarter people than us, better, uh, well-read, more well-read people than us, to make the argument to the world that this is not just good versus bad. This, this is like um, how we should be talking about any kind of technology that affects all of us. The internet is not good or bad. There are shades in between. Some things are good, some things are bad, but there's a lot of things right in the middle. And if we don't start thinking about AI like that, we're gonna either see this complete breakdown of AI um, and saying, well, it's all bad, no one can do anything interesting, but it can't be the opposite either, which is do whatever you want, we'll figure it out later. Like it can't be those two extremes. There's gotta be somewhere in the middle. So. My hope almost is that we'll find those degrees of um, on that spectrum
0: in twenty twenty four. That's my main hope slash prediction. I think it's going to happen much sooner. I think um, I have a few predictions. Some of that we've stem from we've yeah, well, already yeah, One of them, haters. I think the I think we'll see some some pretty major election interference and uh, rise of disclosed uh, data poisoning attacks in twenty twenty four. And I think in many cases, on what you're talking about is actually the central sort of challenge we face. I mean, this folks, you know, liken sort of this invention to, you know, the invention of fire. This is how monumental, you know. So this we're in the early days, but uh, how monumental getting this technology right. And I find you're right that the discourse is split uh, a little bit. It's it's a little too polarized, uh, maybe like the rest of the society, and, and that's not necessarily great for the development of of these ecosystems because of the potential that some of this technology can have, right? We don't wanna limit innovation, but at the same time we wanna sort of govern it and use it responsibly. But then people are mm-hmm. putting out ridiculous surveys like this nonsense. Um, and so I think it's gonna, it's gonna happen in the public discourse. And I think it's, um, we'll see how it goes, but I, I do think that it's gonna happen sooner rather than later where people are going to see deep fake attacks, um, you know, voice calls mm-hmm. um, around sort of voting saying, hey, the polls are actually closed. You don't need to kind of come. That sort of stuff is actually very easy to envision. Um, and likely scenarios for election interference. You're going to, I think, also see uh, disclose examples of, of data poisoning where hacker groups affected the latest training of GPT-5. Uh, I actually uh, was talking to someone at OpenAI where they're spending a tremendous amount of uh, resources on this where they will do kind of model flags, where they have a detection system where they think if uh, both at the prompt level, but if they think the underlying data is poisoned, looking at not just the, the text, but the machine readable code Um, that's being the models being trained on to detect that before it's actually input into their, you know, training ecosystem before, you know, the prompt is input Input validation. Exactly. So input validation and and data validation, but I think that's going to be a big thing uh, that's going to come to the forefront uh, because of elections. And uh, it's just going to be a more, you know, politically oriented Mm -hmm. year. Uh, So um, my other, on a, on a, on a more, you know, pause note, I think that, um, we will see sort of, uh, I, we talked about this was, but I think the divergence between falling training costs and continued high inference costs uh, will lead to sort of more localized inference and, and model development. We'll hear more yeah. about edge architectures for models, et cetera. It's gonna be easier and easier for folks to use. That's great. Already coming out, yeah. I think then, I also think and we'll multi-model. see the most- first- Oh yeah, whatever that means, uh, we'll we'll see multimodal for sure. But the uh, <laughs> yeah. and I think we'll see the first meta major set of federal cases involving OpenAI, Meta, Google, yeah. um, where there's uh, you know discussions on training data, and we'll kind of kind of see continued uh, training data restrictions. Those are a few of mine. I I do wonder one one sort of um, thing to end on that I've been talking to folks about is do you think because of the stuff we're seeing around benchmarking, some of the major issues we're having infinite kind of course components of element for we'll see a mini winter um and sort of lm model development where you can see kind of the state-of-the-art headlines but it's actually of harder for yeah. folks to develop so my, my prediction actually will see a little bit of a uh yeah. cool down in venture investing at least in language model infra mm-hmm.
1: yeah I, I i think we will but not because it's gonna get harder i don't think that's why yeah i think it's it, like
0: like crypto. Thanks a ton to everyone who tuned in. Um, we super appreciate you sticking with us for the first year of podcasting. We have a big plans for twenty twenty four and uh, hopefully you found this uh this this gem of us two riffing on on random topics a little bit interesting and useful. But thanks all and have a have a wonderful uh end of twenty twenty three and a, hopefully a great twenty twenty four.